everyone. Welcome to Mabani's podcast channel. I'm Miriam Jazini, a director at Mabani. I interviewed Dahlia Mugahid, research director at the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding. In this episode, Dahlia talks about their report titled Measuring the Legal and Media Responses to Ideologically Motivated Violence in the U.S. The report found that perceived Muslim perpetrators are treated differently by the media and by law enforcement, leading to vastly different sentences. Here is our conversation. Thank you so much, Dahlia, for being with us today. We really appreciate it. So for our speakers, um, Dahlia Mugahid is the research director at the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding. Can you tell us a little bit about, um, I'm going to refer to the social policy, uh, the Institute for Social Policy and Understanding as ISPU. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about ISPU? Absolutely. ISPU is a nonpartisan nonprofit organization focused on the American Muslim community. We exist to do research and education to enable well-informed dialogue and decisions about the American Muslim community. So we do rigorous research on the policy issues that impact the community, as well as the internal challenges and opportunities facing the community. And then we take that rigorous research and share it with the world, specifically practitioners and decision makers that uh, would benefit from understanding the community better. That includes community leaders themselves, as well as media professionals, policymakers, um, educators. Wonderful. And what is your role at ISPU? I have the great privilege of serving as the director of research at ISPU. And how did you become involved with the organization? So I uh, started working at ISPU eight years ago, and I had just left the Gallup organization where I served as the executive director of Muslim studies. And that was a, a role where I oversaw global research. And I really felt like the kind of impact I wanted to make was right here at home. And I was looking for a position that would allow me to take those skills and serve the community and apply it to understanding American Muslims. And so when this position opened up, I applied and um, me and uh, our executive director, Miera Nagaz, actually started on the same day in August of 2014. Oh, wonderful. Was found to have um, very detailed plans to bomb 70 Islamic centers in Florida. And he had the bomb making equipment. He had blueprints of the, the, the mosques. He had a manifesto. Um, but his identity happened to be Jewish. And of course, his targets were Muslims. And he received 10 years in prison, and it was the maximum that he could receive. And it was for what was called in, in the courts right at that point, um, a hate crime. Uh, and at the same time, people were being arrested for, you know, Muslim perceived perpetrators were being arrested for far less and receiving 20, 30, 40 year sentences, not for actual, uh, you know, incident, not for actual violence that they had committed, but for alleged plots to commit violence. So there seemed to be this huge disparity in these incidents, in, in the way that the, the law was 
treating ideologically motivated violence, where if the if Muslims were the target, it was called a hate crime, and given very you know very light sentence comparatively. And if Muslims were the perpetrators, it was treated as international terrorism, of course, with much heavier sentences for um, alleged plots. So. I was very interested in just doing research on is this systemic or is this are these one offs is this this difference in what is a hate crime what is a terrorist uh, plot um, is this something that you know kind of goes across the board so we we did a study that compared incidents that are deemed ideologically motivated where there was some indication of an ideology. It wasn't just a random crime, but some kind of ideology as a motivation and looked at both the legal and the media treatment of those crimes. And we wanted to pick a, a specific time frame so that we would be looking at both Democrats and, and Republican administrations. So we looked at the years between 2001 until 2015. And we brought in two legal experts. So the primary investigators on this project were two lawyers specialized in civil rights uh, litigation. And, um, and we also brought in uh, some research assistants that did some deep dives into the media piece. So how did you, dis how did you ensure when you conducted that research that your creating an apples to apples comparison? Um, did you identify specific objective factors or parameters in conducting that um, research? Yeah, thank you for asking. That, that's, that was an incredibly important point um, that we considered in our report and in our uh, research because we didn't want to be accused of comparing, you know, different incidents that were different in kind in terms of their severity. So we made sure that when we were comparing incidents that they had similar um, fatalities if they were actually carried out. Uh, but if they weren't carried out, similar weapons used, the intended outcome had to be very similar in terms of uh, target level of fatalities. Um, the targets of the incidents were, were also, we made sure that they were similar and then were there co-perpetrators? So those were the factors that we made sure were similar and comparable if we were going to be comparing those incidents. The only factor that was therefore different was the type of ideology that was motivating the violence and the perceived identity of the perpetrator. Got it. And um, what did the report reveal? Well, the report revealed that systemically Muslim perpetrators of alleged violent plots were treated very differently than perpetrators of other backgrounds. So um, let's start with kind of the, the easy part, which is how the media treated uh, these two groups. In, in cases where uh, we were just looking at plots, and these are, of course, um, incidents that never occurred, nothing actually happened, it was a plot that was stopped by law enforcement. Muslim perceived perpetrators uh, in these plots 
received 770% more media coverage. So that's seven, almost eight times the media coverage for uh, a foiled plot as non-Muslim perpetrators of very similar type plots. So that was the first thing. But I think that, um, you know, we expect the media perhaps to be biased. We don't expect our judicial system to have this level of bias. But in fact, what we found is that when it came to these types of plots, uh, Muslim perpetrators received four times average the prison sentence of uh, their non-Muslim counterparts for very similar type plots. You know, to, to give you an example, just one kind of, you know, one, two stories that really stuck out in my mind when we were doing this study, there was a case of a man named Justin Carl Moose. Uh, he was a uh, North Carolina man, and he described himself as the as bin Laden's Christian counterpart. And he was charged in an abortion clinic bomb plot. And he acted independent of law enforcement. This was not a sting operation. There wasn't an informant involved really. Um, law enforcement didn't give him the explosives and he didn't even make the national media. So we looked at the New York Times and the Washington Post to uh, assess media coverage. And we, we chose, and that was for the entire report, we chose those two publications because they are considered, you know, the most um, prestigious and the, the publications of note. And they're even accused of having a quote, liberal bias. So if the New York Times and the Washington Post were, you know, bias in this regard, then, you know, just imagine how, how bad other newspapers might be. So he got no coverage whatsoever in either of these newspapers. And he got two and a half years of prison. That was his sentence. Now contrast that to Antonio Martinez. He is a 21-year-old recent convert to Islam, according to news coverage, and he tried to blow up a military recruiting station in Baltimore, in a Baltimore suburb. It was part of a sting operation by the FBI who uh, supplied him with the explosives. His story was covered uh, by 10 articles in the New York Times and the Washington Post, and he received 25 years of prison sentence. Um, two cases very similar in nature, both ideologically motivated, both uh, targeting, you know, a, um, a building would have caused casualties that were very similar, and yet the Muslim perceived perpetrator uh, received a much, much more um, serious sentence and a much more serious treatment in the media. Wow, um, that, that, that really does put, put it into very stark terms. I, I saw that one of the key findings in the report was that being a perceived Muslim perpetrator often caused prosecutors to seek, um, to prosecute the cases differently. So mm -hmm. I think you alluded to this earlier, um, where, where if, if it was a non-Muslim perpetrator, it was uh, it would be prosecuted as a hate crime versus if it was a Muslim perpetrator, it, it would be um, prosecuted as a terrorist um, crime. How does this affect sentencing? Right. No, very uh, important question. I mean, the difference in, in how folks are charged affects sentencing 
dramatically. The disparity was really stark. Um, for instance, sentences were on average 211 months for Muslim perceived perpetrators and just 53 months for non-Muslim perceived perpetrators. Um, and the sentences sought by prosecutors uh, were on average 20, 230 months for the Muslim perceived perpetrators in contrast to only 76 months for uh, those who are not perceived to be Muslim. So even uh, it, it, the prosecutors themselves are seeking much lighter sentences. It's not just um, what juries are awarding or whatever. It's, it's from the very beginning, prosecutors are viewing non-Muslim perceived perpetrators for very similar crimes in, in a completely different light versus Muslim perpetrators or Muslim perceived perpetrators. Why do you think that is? The reason, um, you know, one of, we are still, really that is an open question, but one of the main reasons is the, the type of charge is, that is being um, sought. So Muslim perpetrators were much more likely and almost all of them exclusively charged as, as having weapons of mass destruction for a very similar explosive that would not be called the same, that is not called the same thing when um, it involves a non-Muslim perpetrator. So when that charge is levied, mostly, you know, weapons of mass destruction, there are automatic, very, very heavy sentences. So the, the WMDs uh, for these crimes are are simple explosives. You can you can almost call anything a weapon of mass destruction. But if you you, you seek that charge, then you have like uh, you, you then the sentences that are awarded are like twenty years and more. Whereas a very similar explosive will um, and is not called a weapon of mass destruction in a foiled plot is is only given around five years. So that was one of the key differences. It wasn't just that uh, Muslim perceived perpetrators were being charged um, as, you know, carrying out a quote terrorist attack, but that they were being charged under this this law around weapons of mass destruction. Now, what is especially noteworthy is in the vast majority of the cases, this weapon was supplied by law enforcement. So law enforcement is is building a weapon or a, a fake explosive that would be deemed under the law, you know, uh, in terms of the legal definition, a weapon of mass destruction, giving it to the would-be perpetrator and then charging them for that. Whereas the non-Muslim um, perpetrators, with very few exceptions, did not have law enforcement supplying the weapon. They were building their own weapons, and yet they were receiving far lighter sentences. Wow. So we talked a little bit, and I know you uh, about the legal implications and, and what that means for sentencing, which is very stark. Um, and you alluded to um, the two um, news agencies that you um, tracked in, in part of, as part of this uh, research, the New York Times and Washington Post. What did you find um, with respect to the way um, perceived Muslim perpetrators and um, non-Muslim perpetrators were treated by the media. So we found that, you know, when it came to an actual, you know, horrific and, and tragic violent incident where it was actually carried out, 
the disparity was actually far less. So in the case of a, uh, an incident that was actually carried out, uh, Muslim, Muslim perpetrators only received twice as much coverage as non-Muslim perpetrators of very similar plot, very similar incidents. But where the real difference was, where the difference was much more stark was in this idea of plots, foiled plots. In the case of foiled plots, if it involved a non-Muslim, they almost got no coverage. They definitely didn't, they didn't get coverage in the New York Times and the, and the Washington Post. It just didn't make national news. But when it involved a Muslim perceived perpetrator, a foiled plot would get extensive coverage in the Washington Post and the New York Times. So on average, 7.75 uh, times the coverage. That's, as I briefly mentioned before, seven, almost 800% more coverage uh, if it involved a Muslim perpetrator and that, that's in that's involving a plot, something that wasn't carried out, that was foiled by law enforcement. The vast majority of these plots involved a sting operation uh, where the where a law enforcement uh, officer or someone working with law enforcement supplied the would-be perpetrator with the weapon. And so I think that this is incredibly important, this piece about the role of law enforcement and the involvement of law enforcement in these foiled plots uh, and, and their absence in the non-Muslim uh, cases that we uh, found in the record. So the other, the other uh, I was just gonna mention that in terms of media coverage, the other big difference was the use of the word terrorism. So um, as your listeners may assume or may have guessed, uh, the word terrorism or terrorist was much more often used to describe Muslim perceived perpetrators than those of ideologically motivated plots that were not Muslim. And um, in contrast, hate, hate crimes, Muslims never committed hate crimes. If they were going to commit any crime targeting another, another group, it was called terrorism. So I think that that's an interesting twist kind of that hate crimes were reserved for non-Muslims to carry out. They were never called terrorism, but literally just switching the identities of the victim and the perpetrator in one direction, it's called a hate crime. And in the other direction, it's called a terrorist act. Thank you. So what does this all mean? I mean, aside from the impact obviously on the individual perpetrators. How do these issues impact American Muslims and as well as the broader community at large? Well, I think it impacts uh, our entire society in a lot of different ways. So first on American Muslims, how does it impact American Muslims in general? Well, most American Muslims, vast majority of them will never be arrested or accused of carrying out a violent crime, thank God. Um, but it impacts all of us because it creates the perception that Muslims are more prone to violence than other people. And that impacts everyone because it fuels a perception of uh, Muslims as being suspect, as being dangerous. It, it fuels Islamophobia. It also it fuels public consent and public 
um, approval of law enforcement tactics that would otherwise be rejected, like surveillance. If we're constantly hearing about and reading about Muslim, you know, foiled plots, and they're the only ones we're reading about, we're going to very naturally feel like this community needs to be watched carefully. And so um, when our civil community civil rights are, are rolled back, the public will mostly approve of that or, or think it's okay, think that it's justified. So it, it impacts Muslims for sure, Muslim, Muslim communities, regardless of who they are, but it also impacts, you know, the freedom of everyone. I mean, when it's okay to surveil Muslims, it becomes much easier to carry out surveillance of other communities, of activists, of Black Lives Matters activists, of people, um, you know, protesting against anything the government is doing. So when it becomes okay for one group, it's much easier to then excuse it for other groups. It's a very serious matter when there is this kind of judicial and media disparity. It means there isn't fairness, there isn't justice really for anyone. If it's, if it's being done to one group, it makes it much more easy to then apply that across the board. And I mean, I, this is kind of like asking the question in a different way, but why do these disparities in handling cases of ideological violence matter? I just want to make sure that we yeah. drive this home for the listeners. Well, addressing disparities um, can save lives. It, it means that we're applying the the right amount of resources to the problem based on its actual severity, not based on a politicized agenda of who's supposed to be the bad guy. So why has white supremacist violence been, you know, sort of almost taken people by surprise? Because it's been ignored. And, and yet academics have been saying for years that it is a much bigger problem than um, you know what what they called like Al Qaeda sp- uh, inspired violence, but yet there wasn't there wasn't attention to it. There wasn't funding around um, addressing it. There weren't resources. There wasn't public attention. There wasn't media attention, and so the problem kept getting worse. So when we aren't using a an evidence fact based uh, approach to keeping our country safe and instead a, an approach that is driven by bias, we're actually less safe that way. That's one thing. The second thing is the disparities uh, based on identity violate the civil rights really of all Americans and, and fuel discrimination, especially against Muslims. But Muslims are like the canaries in the coal mine. We might be the first to feel it, but the toxic bias uh, and the political climate that allows that bias is hurting everyone. And then finally, these biases in response to uh, this this danger, these violent plots leads to us misallocating resources. So at one point in our research, we actually asked a former prosecutor, 
why is it that law enforcement is sending all these informants and doing all these sting operations only for one group? Why, why, are, why is this tactic so overrepresented when it comes to Muslim, um, you know, alleged plots and, and non-existent for anyone else? And he, he, he basically had to admit that that's because that's what the funding they had was for. So, so police departments and, um, and other law enforcement agencies are getting funding for one type of crime, one type of ideologically motivated plots, and not for anything else. Uh, and that misallocation of funds that is based on politics and not actual facts is um is oh you know is causing this disparity at least partially it, it, it seems like a circular problem almost um so who are the key stakeholders um, of this study so the key stakeholders are media professionals especially print media professionals but really any media professional uh, in in becoming aware of this disparity and this bias that's kind of been baked into the way we cover these stories. Prosecutors and law enforcement are another key stakeholder, really the public at large, policymakers, and then of course the Muslim community. So I guess I want to leave this with, with like, what are some, what can we do about this? What are some strategies that the media and law enforcement can use to guard against the types of disparities and treatment that were identified in this report? So that's a, a really uh, important question. So first of all, I encourage media professionals to check out our guide uh, to covering American Muslims confidently and creatively, which, which looks at these inherent biases and how to overcome them. It's at ispu.org forward slash media professionals. Uh, the other thing, the other wonderful resource we have is one that was created by the Asian American Journalists Association that actually took this report and wrote like, from a, the perspective of journalists, um, like a guide with recommendations. And one of their key recommendations is to really examine how one would cover a story if the identity of the perpetrator was changed to the mainstream, to a Christian, to, um, a, you know, a, a white Christian man. And just think about how would this story be written? What kind of words would be used? What kinds of questions would be, you know, asked of, of them, of their lawyer and so forth. And I think that that's a very simple, but very powerful exercise uh, in, in trying to approach how to cover these stories better. When it comes to the legal system and how prosecutors are um, going after or these, these perpetrators and how law enforcement is approaching, I think it's a lot more complicated um, and may require really legal reform at the top changing the law, changing what the laws are, where resources are put, how people are incentivized. Uh, and, and it's really the topic of a, a second report that we are hoping to do where we dig into how to address the legal disparities regarding 
ideologically motivated violence. Uh, Dahlia, this is uh, this was a very informative um, discussion. Um, I, I'm very glad that ISPU conducted this research, and and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about the report um, and 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 its significance. Thank you so much for your interest, and I really hope that this was helpful uh, to your audience.